I want to talk to you about the Gospel of John, specifically John 14, 1 to 14. And I'll be reading from the NIV today. So if you want to turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, and starting at verse 1, you can join in with me as we get to it. I have such a deep love and affection for the Gospel of John. It's a very different Gospel than the synoptic Gospels of Matthew, Mark and Luke, which are written from a very uh, similar perspective. The Gospel of John is different because it uh, not only was written from AD 80 to 90 AD, but there's a much larger emphasis in it on the fact that Jesus is God, the Lord of all. In the very first paragraph, we encounter Jesus as the Word, or in the Greek term, the Logos, the divine reason implicit in the cosmos itself, ordering it and giving it form and meaning. This also challenged the views of three significant groups who lived during Jesus' time and also at the time of the writing of this gospel and the time towards the end of John's life. Those people were the Jewish readers, the people who Jesus lived amongst and who he actually came from, and it established to them that Jesus is actually the pre-existent instrument in creation, the source of light and truth. Rising up next to the Christian church were the Gnostic believers, a heretical uh, a branch, I suppose you could call, of Christianity. And basically Gnostic groups saw Jesus as being sent by a supreme being, which they often assumed to be the God of the Old Testament, to bring gnosis or knowledge of spiritual mysteries to earth. And in this gospel, John is telling them that Jesus is actually the true incarnation of God. The word become flesh. And the reason the Gnostic issue in the first century is still with us, because having been raised in the New Age movement, which started back in the late 60s, really, um, I can assure you it's, it's these incorrect beliefs that the Gnostics has of Jesus that still pervade so many of our beliefs today, especially Gen X people like me who were raised in them. And for the followers of John the Baptist, it was established that John was not himself the light. He was a witness to the light and that witness to the light of Jesus Christ. And now we encounter Jesus during the Passover, his disciples in the room with him in the period right before his trial. The scourging, his crucifixion are all inbound after a three-year journey together. What an intense time for them of questions and trying to understand what Jesus was doing, about to do, and what his teachings had actually meant. He's sharing that his hour to leave the world is here. It's leading to his ultimate betrayal of false promises and confusion about where he was going. This morning in this intro, I want to look at three things in the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the key to our understanding of the life of Jesus, our Christian formation, and our lives as Christians. And I uphold the Scriptures 100% as the Word of God, inspired and infallible. We, like the apostles did, we have an assurance that God has a place for us. Just as they ask for more evidence and they question Jesus, doubt is inevitable in you and in me, and it's an opportunity for actually for us to discover truth. And Jesus never expected the apostles or us to live and minister in our own strength. Join me, please, in verse 1 to 4. In the NIV it says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? 
And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you with me to be in that place that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Jesus states to his disciples that their hearts are troubled and he knows this. They're troubled by confusion, they're troubled by fear, they're troubled by lack of clarity and in the case of Judas Iscariot, by contempt. When he assures the disciples that they are to believe in God and also in him, it reassures both the disciples and us that the claims that he made about himself and God are absolutely true. Jesus reiterates to them that his claims are are true and they're to be trusted. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? But then, by implying that they know the place to where he is going, he is also setting the conversation up for one of the most critical passages of scripture that differentiates Christianity from every other religion and belief system, including the Jewish religion that the disciples had been raised in. So the man that the disciples have known and have walked with and have loved and have been confused by at times for the last few years was always God made flesh. Yet here they are becoming acutely aware that despite the incredible miracles that they have seen and the teachings, that this is the Son of God himself. Culturally, they've been raised to expect a Messiah to restore the nation of Israel to its former glory. A Messiah who was a military Messiah, a Messiah who would make this the centre of the world again. But now that very Messiah is sitting with them. That is being revealed to them. And he is speaking of a home that is not the nation of Israel, but it is actually in the rooms of his Father who has prepared a place for those who love and follow Jesus. In the very presence of God, where he goes, he will bring them to be with him. You and I, in our frailty as humans, also live out the expectations of our faith tradition or the experiences of our lives of Christ or the lives of others that follow Jesus. We end up having the same doubts and the same confusions that the disciples had in the room that night. As Jesus promised them that he would prepare a place for them, so he promised that believers to come, you and I, that those promises are also true. Otherwise, he would not offer them to those who follow him. The second point I want to look at is doubt is inevitable. Thomas, if you sorry, just join me in verses 5 to 11. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How could you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. How would you like to forever be remembered as doubting Thomas? Not Thomas, the guy that can do 100 metres in under 10 seconds, not Thomas the guy who was the first person to climb the mountain, not Thomas the guy who caught the biggest fish, Thomas the doubter. It's going to stick, but rather than a deficit or a moment of stupidity, doubt is often the precursor to a revelation of truth. Thomas created a segue 
for Jesus to respond with statements that remove doubt forever. Thomas's honest response of not really knowing the answer to Jesus' statement, you know the way to the place where I'm going, was a divinely appointed moment and opportunity in history for Jesus to finally inform them, I am the way, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. They have now heard the revealing of God's plan. That Jesus was the only way, and I mean the only way in scriptures, back to a restored relationship with God. This statement, both then and today, changed everything about faith, about religion, about human purpose, and ultimately human destiny. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Add to this Philip's own admission of needing additional proof to show us the Father and that will be enough for us, Jesus responds that after all this time, did they and we need another demonstration, another set of evidences based on the works that were seen by the disciples that Jesus' relationship of being in the Father and the Father in him were ever in question. There comes a time when our need for proof moves to a realm similar to asking your parents for another DNA test to confirm their claims of parenthood or looking to Ancestry DNA Weekly for more evidence of our ethnicity. The need for certainty, validity and assurance is never exhaustive, but it can be incredibly exhausting. As Jesus said to a still doubting Thomas, when he appeared after his resurrection later on in chapter 20, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet they have believed. Back then and now, our doubts are opportunities to invite truth to be made known. If we're willing to honestly and openly and vulnerably share our doubts. But once these truths are known, once they've been made clear to us, We have our part to play in responding to them to ensure we do not slide from that truth into heresy or at worst, unbelief. The Apostle Peter reminded the church that was forming in Rome knowing his own death was imminent while in prison in 2 Peter 1, 1-16. So I will always remind you of these things even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that it will soon be put aside as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I'll make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things, because Peter himself knew that too quickly we forget the things of the Lord. But rather than setting him up for failure, as so many human leaders do, When they withhold knowledge that will transform their followers, Jesus fully anticipated and fully foreknew the doubt of Thomas and Philip and used it. He used it as a segue to something they have not fully yet understood, that he was the way, that he was the truth, and that he was the only way to the Father. And once we know the truth, we can avoid it, we can deny it, we can choose to not apply it to our lives. 
But if you've ever seen what happens to a person who slips away from the truth, who walks away from the source of light, love and salvation because it was a hard truth, because it was offensive, because they were hurt by people in the church or because they were offended on behalf of others, it doesn't change the fact that it's still a truth. When Jesus said he was the way, the truth and the life, there was and is no other way to reconciliation with God and eternal life other than through Jesus' death on the cross as the payment Payment for our sins. His resurrection is evidence of our future resurrection on the day of reckoning. And his love is bigger than our sin. His suffering made a way back to God for all of us if we're willing to believe and follow. And finally, Jesus never expected the apostles or us to live and minister in our own strengths. Join me looking at verses 12 to 14. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing. And they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask for anything in my name and I will do it. The first hearers of this statement were Jesus' disciples. For them, this became reality straight after the resurrection when they witnessed Jesus ascend to the Father and from the day of Pentecost described in detail in the book of Acts the very things that Jesus was talking about here. Incredible miracles, casting out of demons, healings, signs and wonders, the ability to communicate with great and small Jew and Gentile, with power and courage and a new capacity to lead people to Christ and to build the formative church. As we see in John 25, uh, in verse 20, in verse 25 of John chapter 14, sorry, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would come not only to recall to mind all the things that Jesus had said to the disciples, but to encourage, to empower, to comfort and to connect. All this I have spoken while with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything that I have said to you. In modern Christianity, that's the 20th, 21st century to you and I, this verse has simultaneously been very exciting and simultaneously frustrating. The words that Jesus uses seemingly imply, simply at a proof text reading, that whoever believes in Jesus will do the works he's been doing and greater things because the Holy Spirit would come. And not only recall to mind the things that Jesus had said to the disciples, but to encourage and empower and connect us to God in a way in a way that the new covenant did, away with the temple worship and the sacrifices and made every believer the temple of the Holy Spirit. We were never left alone to simply read the scriptures as merely some kind of history book. Always looking back in time through the pages and doing our best to follow in the guidance of Jesus in our own strength. We can ask in his name and his authority for the things that glorify the Father through the Son through the Holy Spirit. And while these words are more relevant to not being self-reliant, but being relying on God, encouraging us to come to God for all our needs and requests, we could end up taking these words of Jesus encouraging us to ask for anything and apply it simply for personal gain, ambition and vainglory. Sadly, we see this happening in the church all the time. It's taking the Lord's name in vain and using it for personal glory. But in reality, Jesus is the model for the suffering servant, the one who does the perfect will of God, demonstrating to us that no matter what's happening in our lives or what our needs are or what the needs of others are, that all our requests need to be in line with the will, the obedience of God and his word. 
To ask for anything in Jesus' name is to ask in his authority. Those requests and their outcomes are to be used as gifts for the church to glorify God and to lead other people to Christ. As receivers of the Holy Spirit, we now have the mind of Christ and can take every thought captive and subject them to the will and the obedience of God. So if Jesus said to his disciples and vicariously to us, we can do the things he did and even greater things, then something should stir in us, particularly the opportunities that we have that the early church didn't have. And we need to actively operate in those opportunities. The book of Acts is full of the things that Jesus did and the things that Jesus was talking about here. Incredible miracles, incredible signs, incredible wonders and the ability to communicate in a new way. Yet we forget why Jesus said this and who the message was originally for and what it was intended for and that is reinforcing the fact that it was to proclaim the glory of God and to establish a new church. Sadly, there are pastors out there who have used this to try and swim in front of the uh, walk on water, sorry, in front of their congregations, and knowing for a while they couldn't swim and they've drowned in front of the congregations. Uh, it's been used to handle snakes from the pulpit and to die from snake bites. And church leaders in our time uh, in twenty in twenty twenty have actually used this to go against the government's rulings to keep churches open and actively created these clusters of COVID-19 where pastors and congregation members have become sick and died. We can't use this passage um, that Jesus' original hearers received that they would do equal and greater things than he and actually use it in contradiction with other scriptures, such as do not put God to the test and to obey authorities. Doing equal and greater things with Jesus does not mean the church behaving like a show pony. As mentioned, we have a far greater opportunity than Jesus and the apostles ever had to reach the world through the Great Commission, but particularly in our own communities. This is a time where we participate wholeheartedly in the Great Commission, no matter what's going on. It's a time to support the persecuted church. It's a time where the gospel has been proclaimed in a space of great humility, uh, uh, sorry, in a great space of great hostility for them. And it's a time for us in Orange to passionately engage with SRE. Yes, God can absolutely do miracles and signs and wonders, heal the sick, cast out unclean spirits, and bring to mind only things that God himself would know, but never in a way that contradicts his word. For they are signs of God's power, God's authority, God's sovereignty, and they cause us and others to believe and glorify God. They are never to pursue for the sake of pursuit. So in summary, thanks for having me this morning, and I want you to just take home three things. We, like the apostles, have the assurance that God has a place for us. Just as they ask for more evidence and question Jesus, doubt is inevitable and God has the answers we need in the scriptures. And Jesus never expected them or us to live and minister in our own strength. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing your word today. Thank you for the life of your servant John. And I thank you that he recorded all those things that you did for our generation and the generations to come. Lord, may we live as your people. May our doubt turn to truth. Lord, may your leading to the Father bring us to salvation in in you. And Lord, would you bless our great commission in this town through all the churches. And Lord, would you open the hearts and minds of those we are reaching out to in Jesus' name. Amen.